0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, I uh, I watched the Phillies game yesterday. Well, I listened to it, and it really sucks how bad they are. I looked at their odds; they're 500 to one. The closest team is the Texas Rangers in the AL; they're 120 to one odds to win the World Series. That means the Philadelphia Phillies are four, over four times worse than the worst team in the AL to win the World Series. And Boston hit five home runs; the Phillies got three hits. And to make it worse. Everyone says, you know, Ruben Amaro's a dunce. Well, they traded Kyle Kendrick, who didn't do crap in Philadelphia, 500 pitcher, goes and throws seven innings of a uh, shutout ball. And then Jimmy Rollins, who they trade away, because he's too old, goes and hits the game-winning home run for uh, the Dodgers. So it's just crazy. But enough about that. We have a Actually, we have a big Phillies fan, too. A great comic, great storyteller. We have Rich Shadner. How are you doing, Rich?
1: Very, very well, Steve. Very well. You're it's going to be fan. the early 70s again, <laughs> but we don't have Carlton to win half the games. Remember in, in 72 when he won 27 54 games, 27 and 10. Yeah, they will. They will, they will win right. 27 games because there's no Carlton to win the other 27.
0: It's awful. And the thing is, now are you planning to go back east at all this summer? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you're going to go to a game when you're back there. Yeah, but I'm
1: going to go to the old Veterans Stadium and watch okay. them there. <laughs>
0: So, Rich, if people don't know, Rich has been on the show a few times. And uh, the last time you were on, well, since you've been on, I think it's been two years. You've been going out on the road a lot. And you've been yeah. working on your book. Yeah. Now, the book—I want—you have a new website. It's richshiner.com. It's—it's right. uh, it's all fancy now. It's good. Is it—is it, is it a WordPress site? Is that what it is? No, no. If, uh, a guy named Sean
1: Bresnan okay. set it up for me. A guy from Atlanta, and uh, it's great. And um, you know, because I'm getting ready to publish this book early 2016. I'm going to be finishing it soon. Uh, just a few more pieces I'm writing, and I'll put them on Facebook, rip them off, and then then put it all together. And I got um, an editor, so you know, that's just going to go piece by piece and, and get it done. So I wanted to have a website, something up to sort of get ready for that. I just finished writing a script for, which is why I was so delayed, because I was writing a script for Bill Maher for HBO. Do you ever read his book, True Story? So, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've never 20 read. years ago. So I did an adaptation of that. So now I can go back to finishing my book, which is what I'm just going to do that.
0: Well, it's funny, because I know I had seen you at Bob's Espresso, which right. closed, it sucked. That's, that was awful. I mean, it was such a... If people know, Bob's Espresso was owned by Robert Romanes, who played Demona Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and he had this great little coffee shop in NoHo, and Rich got to work his act out. I got to do two uh, Cooper Talk Lives there, three. Uh, Bill Burr would do guest sets there. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It was great, but when I saw you working that story, you had so many stories, yeah. and how do you decide... What goes into your book? Like, because you have. And going to a few Because stories. every every time
1: I do a story in the book, it has to have something to do with stand up comedy, whether it's heckling or joke thievery, or I just wrote a piece about not liking the audience, which is a very, a tough dilemma for every comic if you ever hit that. You know, it's all one thing. We always think of it the one part of the equation, which all well, the comics got to have the audience like them to, to, for it to be working, you know, for the comic to get a laugh. If they don't like you, they're not going to laugh at you. But what's about the other side of it? What happens if you hit an audience where you don't like the audience? And I had this happen to me in in Kentucky back in like eighty eighty one. It was one of those one nighters where you they go okay you're going to Cleveland comedy club and then you have to go to Mark Ridley's place in Detroit. But you, we got a couple of one nighters for you in between so you can pick up some money you know between Sunday and when you start Wednesday. So it was one of those bars in Kentucky and um, one nighter and I pull in there and they got an opening act and you know he's some guy you know I don't know where he's from what he you know he's right. probably you know local you know parts manager at Pep Boys and. <laughs> And he's doing comedy too. And he goes up and he starts. That's one of those ones where he started dirty. I mean, it was not even, you, you know, I don't know how how so like, in the gutter. The show. I forgot. Yeah, you, I you forgot.
0: Know, we could just if if, if an f bomb. It's it's really in the gutter. It's we, really, it was bad wait, we, from we the had, beginning. From we, the beginning, we had, I had Ron Zimmerman on a few weeks ago. so, yeah. so you know there was f bomb. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, gonna, so. no, no, but
1: anyway, he was dirty from the beginning. And which is not the way I like to have an opening act for him. You know, you you got to kind of leave it. he's ripping it right from the beginning, dirty. You know. The D jokes, man. The D jokes are flying, and I'm I'm back there pacing, you know, waiting to go on. And I'm watching like, oh man, and they're laughing, they're going along with it. You know, crowd's a bar crowd in Kentucky on like a Monday night or something, so they're going with him, you know. And then it gets just dirtier and dirtier, and it's like every old joke you heard when you were in high school, you know. Help me find my keys, and I'll drive us out of here, you know that kind of stuff. Right. right? <laughs> Remember that joke. So. It's just getting... And finally, I just go, okay, can't get worse. He's done as dirty as he can go. It can't get worse. And then he went into racial stuff. And it was like total end jokes. I mean, two ends, you know, are fishing. That kind of... Just stuff to And the crowd's us. loving it. And they're loving it. And now I hate the crowd. I hate the crowd. <laughs> I like, I hate the crowd. And I should have just got my car and left. But for whatever reason, you know, I decide... I'm going to go up there, you know. I'm, I guess probably thinking back, I probably wanted the money, you know. At least I'm going to get some cocaine to go to the next gig, you know. I'm going to get the few hundred bucks, get some coke, and get out of here. Whatever it was, I was in my mind. I went up there, and it was it was terrible. I mean, I hated him. So I was just doing a mechanical version of my act. Anyway, how many people have you ever driven a rental car? You know that kind. Of, you know, it's no. You know, and I'm not such. I'm not a Stephen Wright type of right, comic. Right, you're, you're animated. You, you got it. I got to put it into it. I got to put performance into it it's not going to fly and it was not flying i was plowing the ground i mean i was just digging up dirt and turning it over and it was just you know and they're just sitting there and so i finished it um and and I come off stage, and the bar owner's giving me the money, whatever, and he goes, well, I heard you're really funny. I said, yeah, I heard you people are really liberal, too. I'll see you later. You know, <laughs> you know it's like, I thought I also said, I said, and also I heard the Civil War was over. You might want to check the history books on that one, too.
0: Now, now when you sit there, when you, when you, write, when you sit down and write these stories, and it's so funny, because I think anyone who's done comedy, and when you've had a set like that, or a more of that than a great set you pretty much vividly remember it even if it's 20 odd years later or 30 years later when you do you sit down and when you're going to write a story do you go okay like the, how did you come up with the idea to make that the audience that you hated was that just a, it's something no, it, in your it, head it, it,
1: it you know this is i never thought about comedy once when i was first doing it. you're so busy doing it when you first do it just trying to get laughs you're so busy just trying to get the laughs you never really think about what you're doing or how you're doing it but that actually changed for me. It's weirdest thing. I came out here in '81 to do, even at the Improv, and you used to. And we were staying. My first wife, Carol Carolie, and I were staying at, at the Tropicana Hotel up on. It was on, it was on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. It's kind of a famous place. We were excited to stay because all the rock and rollers supposedly stay there. It was like a Tom Waits hangout. This okay. kind of. And they had, and so we were partying like crazy, you know. I, party, I was so proud of my partying. At one point, at like 4 or 5 in the morning, there's a knock on the door. I open up. There's a guy, a punk there, you know, like from a band with a leather jacket, his hair punked up. He goes, <laughs> hey, man, will you keep it down? I'm like, hey, even the punks are telling us to turn it down. Fantastic, you know. So um, next day, I'm like, uh, I'm going to the Duke's. There was a a, a, a restaurant, a, a, Del- or a, this was a breakfast kind of place, lunch place called Duke's Restaurant there at the Tropical Hotel. And I go in there, and I walk in, and I'm hungover, you know, wearing a leather jacket, you know, and I see Tom Waits sitting there. I go, and I just blurted, I go, I just kind of, I, I was so shocked, I like, Tom Waits! <laughs> like, they just yell it out. He looks up, and then I get, like, all embarrassed, and I go sit down, you know. Well, I get my food, and a minute later, Tom Waits just sits down with his plate of food, goes, hey, how you doing? What are you, in a band or something? I said, no, I'm a comedian. I'm doing stand-up comedy and doing the, the show evening, uh, evening at the end, probably. He goes, comedy! And he starts asking me questions. And I don't have answers for it. I've never thought about it. He's thought about it more than i thought about it. Right. So I was like, i got to start thinking about what I'm doing here. and made me start thinking about it. So when I was putting a book together, I had all these notes from in my journals and stuff. Not journals. I don't want to say like I'm journaled. But whenever I had joke books, I'd write stuff down in it. You know, this thing happened here. So I kind of know the years from based upon the of the books that I had
0: the joke books I had. It's funny the old books because everyone had a book. I know it was like you go and you sit there and go, okay, well what do I want this week? Do I want the the composition book, you know, that had the thing and you go, but you can't turn the pages. Then you get the three ring binder but then sometimes the paper comes on loose yeah, so then you lose a yeah, page. Yeah. And that was a big thing. I mean we in Philly, I mean we would sit there and you go in and guys would have their notebooks and some guys yeah. would have little notebooks. Some guys were idiots would have like a pack of three by five cards and be like, <laughs> <laughs> I went to this one Stop guy's it. place he was he was this guy he was the nicest guy. He was an engineer Engineer, but he just wasn't funny and we were doing some show and he drove it was out in Bethlehem Pennsylvania a place called the fun house it was my first paid gig and I did it every once in a while paid like 60 bucks but then I was like cool we're making money and I went into his apartment he lived in University City in Philadelphia and he had notes, like note cards, stuck all over his wall about bits. And I'm thinking, how can a guy who does this much research just suck? I mean, it was it was bad. I so used that to... in the movie. I did that in the movie. What happened?
1: I had it too. No, no, I put it in the movie. That that's part of the 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 lead character does that because I did that. I had and you like were some, good. I had stuff on my walls, man. But but I I didn't study it before I went on stage like like that because I worked on it in the daytime. I got that from Seinfeld early on. Like I'd write even a. If I woke up hungover or whatever it was, by whatever time I got my head cleared, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon whatever, I would sit down and write and work. So then when you went to the club that night, it was all fresh in your mind, what you wanted to try or what new bit you're working on or whatever. Now, the title of your book is what? Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life as a Stand-Up Comic Through the 1980s Comedy Explosion. Now, how did
0: you come up with that title?
1: Well, I just I feel like I'm kicking through the ashes of my career. I'm just kind of looking. The thing's burned down at this point. I mean, I, I call my comedy tours now circling the drain tours. You know, it's, it's a, you know, I'm doing cruise ships and country clubs and some comedy clubs. But I'm not like trying to, you know, it's like, a, oh, i got to get my act together to get on the Fallon show. I'm just, right. <laughs> I'm just trying to make a living, pay some bills, help the kids get through college. That's all I'm doing at this point.
0: Now, I saw you post something on Facebook about... You were recently were going to do a cruise ship, but someone died or something? Or what was that about? Because that really threw me for a loop because you said some of the people, like some of the, the people on the cruise, didn't give a crap that the guy no, died. No, no,
1: no. What happened was I, that I was flying down to do one of those, it was a high end ship. Uh, uh, I can't even think of it now. It wasn't Regent. It was one of these high end ships, small boutique high end ships. So I'm flying down to um, wherever it is in Venezuela, someplace in Venezuela. Uh, all the way so it's a long flight from LA to get down there and I fly down there and they go you know you, you do a red eye you go into Miami then Miami down there and I get there and I'm supposed to get on the, the ship at like one in the afternoon and then you know so I get down there and everybody's off the ship and, the, and even at the customs at, at the airport the guy went oh man you're not gonna get on that ship man <laughs> that's it. I don't know why I'm doing Jamaican when in Venezuela, <laughs> but that's all I can do. That's all I can do. Yeah, Everybody's sees, Bob Marley, Caesar. Everybody Marley. down in the Caribbean's Bob Marley. <laughs> oh, you know, you know, the whalers man. So he said, the guy said, you know, the, the ship uh, had a fire. I don't know if you're going to get on it, and I got to get down there. And the whole everybody was off the ship, and they were trying to figure out what to do. And so I sat there from one o'clock with my bags. I never got on the ship with all the passengers until. Uh, four in the morning, they finally flew us back to Miami. Said so this cruise is over, everybody's going back, and it's sending me back too. So I didn't sleep for like thirty six hours or whatever; just up the whole time. And so I was hanging out there. At one point, they're handing out medication. There's all these old people, so they got to get on the ship to get all their medication. Just bags of it. You realize how many medications these people are taking? Oh, I'm,
0: I'm on medication. I have to take uh, I take Prodoxa for a regular heartbeat twice a day for my uh, AFib. I mean, for another problem, twice a day, and, a, and a, one other thing. So I have it. And it's, no, these people
1: had fifty gallon yeah, bags. It's amazing. I know because I, I do pills. it
0: three, and you worry. But when you're that old, and you have that many pills, they I mean, you have it. It. Yeah, to take yeah, it. Yeah,
1: they got it. They, so they're getting the medication off. So they have all these bags with with room numbers on it, and the. Person of the microphone. It said, can you help? And I was like, Well, I can help because I'll make them. La-. You know, I did. I started doing stick with the mic. I was like Glenn Super. Remember him, Mr. Bullhorn. Yeah. I'm just doing. I got the thing, and I'm I'm handing out the things and trying to entertain people and just hanging out. And that's all I did. So, but three guys died in a ship fire. It had a fire in the engine room. It's, it sounds like a voyage at the bottom of the sea, kind of. Kowalski's in the engine room. They had a fire, <laughs> so they had three guys die. But everybody was great. All these people who paid a lot of money and this vacation was over, they're going to get their money back. But, you know, the time, the, 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 they were great. But it was just a couple of people would come up and go, go, you know, they were kind of like, what's the deal? How long are we going to be out here? I said, oh, you're going to be out here as long as it takes them to get the bodies off the
0: ship. How about that? <laughs> so now will something like that go into your book? No, I'm not kept. doing
1: – all this – the book is all about – The 80s? 80s. So it's, it starts off with – when I started doing comedy in 77 in D.C., there were no comedy clubs around the country. There wasn't even comedy clubs in D.C. when I started. There was no So I, it kind of just starts my journey there, and then I just caught the wave. You know, when 1980, the clubs, clubs exploded, I was ready to be a road comic, a headliner, whatever you want to call it. I was ready and then all through the 80s and until it kind of collapsed at the end of the 80s. So that's when the book ends then. You know, sort of like when I got off the road, probably 93, 94, that's when it ends.
0: Well, I remember uh, when, when I saw your thing at Bob's and then we worked at JR's. In a, yeah. uh, you told the story about, um, about Alaska. Oh, my you God. you got to tell that story because that's one of the best stories. I mean, to me, that is such a – and I try to tell people. Someone goes, oh, yeah, comedy, you know, and I go, no, you want to hear a story. And yeah. it's, it's it's a classic story.
1: Well, this really kind of epitomizes the whole club scene, what was happening. So David Strassman's ventriloquist, and he calls me up, and I was living in D.C. De- – I mean, or not D.C. De- – I was living in L.A., and it was like 83. He said, i got a new new club for you to work it's in Alaska I said really Anchorage Oh, okay, great great! it's in a strip joint I said I'm not going to a strip joint I'm not working no 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 don't. it's not like that they throw all the perverts out and then they, it's a regular comedy club you turn into a comedy club and all these couples come in it's a regular comedy club it's just a regular comedy club I said okay I'll do it so I fly up you know it's a long flight up to Anchorage I get off the flight and there's a tall black man with a cowboy hat, cowboy boots. It's a little incongruous, you know. I'm not really used to that, you know, country black man kind of thing. <laughs> he's there with a pickup truck to pick me up. His name's Lanier. Great guy. So there, I get in a pickup truck. And he's driving me over to where I'm staying. And he goes, "Hey man," he says, uh, "Hey, you want a beer?" He's got a little cooler there. I said, "No man," because I knew I was an alcoholic before I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew if I started drinking or drugging in the daytime, the show was an iffy proposition. So I said, "No, no beer." He says, "Ah oh, man, you want some smoke?" He pulls a joint out from behind his ear. I said, "No, no, no I'm cool." He said, yeah, hey, you want some whiskey? You know, and he pulls whiskey out of the glove box, a little pint. He says, Oh, you want some blow? And he pulls a little vial of coke out of his breast pocket and his shirt, you know. I said, No, no. I said, he said, mother, you better start doing something. You're in Alaska now. <laughs> I didn't really know. It. This was 83. This is when the pipeline was, they were building a pipeline, and all these pipeline workers would come off like six, eight weeks up there in isolation making tons of money they come down with cash like R&R like, like soldiers in, in a war you know they just come into Anchorage and just party like crazy and then go back and work the pipeline so he drops me off at the condo department and I open the door and I walk in the first thing I see is this naked woman snorting cocaine at the kitchen table and I I'm kind of and Lanier's gone he just opens the door and splits and I kind of I go well I'm the comic and she goes Vic she just starts screaming Vic Vic the other comic's here Vic and a door next to me opens, a bedroom door opens, and Vic Dunlap, who I'd never met before, I knew who he was. He was like a guy who was famous for Make Me Laugh, and he was a guy, a headliner on the road, and L.A. comic who I'd never worked before or met before. He just kind of, he's naked. He's a big guy. He's just naked, and he's like messed up to all believe. He just kind of bounces into the door frame. He goes, oh, thank God you're here, and then passes out on the bed. <laughs> so I go, okay. So we're going over to the club later. Him and I are getting a ride over to the club. It's not far and He said, "Look, he said, this is wild up here. I've been up here for a couple of days doing, you know, Jello wrestling or something, you know. And I've been emceeing these Jello wrestling shows. I haven't slept in two days. It's unbelievable up here, man. It's it's wild, you know. It's the middle of winter, so it's just dark all the time." I said, oh, "Come on, man." He said, "Look, when we get there, I'm just telling you, man. And we get to the club. He goes, we go backstage, and there's all these strippers, and they're all, you know, there's there's strippers that, and and." You, you you can't ask them any personal questions. It's all like everybody else in Alaska. They're they're all running from some sort of outstanding arrest warrants in the lower forty eight. That's where they all have like goofy nicknames up there. But the, if you ask one of the strippers where you're from, she'll just go. You got any blow? That was her that was her stock answer to everything. What's the weather like? You got any blow? What time is it? You Got any blow? That's all they ever said. So we go backstage, you know. And Vic says, "Look, here's the deal, man. It's it's unbelievable up here. You're gonna go out there and do as much time as you can." And when you can't do any more time, just signal me, come on, I'll come out, and you come back here, and he he shows you this plate of cocaine sitting on a two by four behind the stage wall, right? He says, You come over here and do some coke till you're ready to come back out again. I said, nah, Now, what, what is that? And I said, Look, I'm going to go up and do my 45, then you do your 45, and we'll flip flop the show them next night, you know, you'll do 45 and I'll do 45 after you. He says, I won't work, I got it up here, man. I'm just telling you. I said, I, Look, that's the way it is. You know, you just do your 45 and you do 45. So I, I get introduced. I walk on stage. I'm the first comic. I start to go, Hi, it's nice to be in Alaska. And this waitress just out of nowhere just pushes a shot at me. She goes, Drink for you. I go, No, no, no. A little bit, a little bit. She goes, No, no. Drink, drink, drink. The whole crowd starts going, Drink, drink, drink. And I was, uh, you know, I always succumb to peer pressure. You know, so I go, Okay, I take a shot. And I start to do so I, you know, flying up, I start to go into my act. And again, she, Another waitress, another shot. Shot for you. Another shot. And I take another shot. And three, I drank a lot, but I never was a guy that could hold a lot. I mean, I got drunk easy. So three shots in, I'm staggering. I'm right. like, <laughs> I haven't had a drink. I've got jet lag. I'm, I, start, I look over to the side of the stage, and Vic's behind a wall just signaling, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> so I go, I haven't done a joke. I go, all right, I'll be right back. Let's bring out our next comic. I haven't done a joke. And I'm introduced to the next comic. I go, Vic Dunlap. And he comes up, blah, 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 blah. And I go back, and I snort a couple of lines of coke. Actually, I got my balance a little bit. I look over, Vic's doing the same thing. He's hitting shots and trying to do jokes in between shots. Back, we just tag team all night long. Go out to as long as you could. Drink as much as they would make you drink. Try to get some jokes in. Vic and I went out together. we were doing like vaudeville routines. We're doing, we're dancing and singing. We're improv and we're, you know, just as long as we got an hour and a half in. It's the end of the show, we man. We are wasted. And then this big guy, big Texan, comes up to me and goes, Ah, that's funny, buddy. You're really funny. You're going to hang out with me tonight. And he pulls out a sandwich bag filled with Coke. and goes, Yeah, I'll be hanging out with you tonight. <laughs> Absolutely right. And all these guys, they had actually had, the club actually had a, a, you know, they had a coat room, right? But they had a gun check, too. <laughs> so people come in, they hand them their guns, and they pull out their boots. And Lanier had a wand, one of those little wands, his middle wands. One of those things. He was checking people for guns. They had gun check at the club. So this guy, we go, he goes, we're going to have party. I said, all right. So we go out of the club. We walk across the parking lot. We go into this, what looks like a residential house. And we walk inside. And it's like one of those James Bond things. You walk inside and they're like gambling tables everywhere. The whole place is, you know, set up for gambling. There's gambling going on. So he sits down. He's gambling. And I'm, I'm earning my cocaine. I'm standing behind him doing jokes. Place is packed. There's, they're five deep. It's like Atlantic City back in 83, you know. They're five deep at the blackjack tables waiting to get a seat. So this guy's gambling. And. A little. While. He looks at me and goes, Look, I'm going back in the back room there and get a BJ. You hold my seat. You sit down here and hold my seat. So, you know, hold my seat. I sit down. He goes off and I I'm just smoking and, and he leaves the blow with me. So I'm really just smoking and doing blow and betting like, you know, it's cheap as five dollars a hand blackjack. When everybody around me's betting a hundred bucks or whatever. So he comes back out and he goes to the to the dealer, he goes. How's he doing? He goes. He's not betting. He's not betting. F. You know, he's not betting at all.
0: And everybody's yeah, yeah. I want that
1: seat. And he and the Texan grabs him by the back of the <laughs> neck and squeezes. And all, I'd never been. You know, I've been, I've wrestled. I played football. I'd never felt pressure like this on my neck before. I thought, is he going to make me blow him? I mean, is that was happening. side where are we going here? You know, I mean, I'm going anywhere. He's pushing it because he's got my neck, man. He almost lifts me out of my seat. He goes. Got some goddamn money. Bet, hold this seat. I'm going back and get laid now. Doing things properly. You know, apparently it was a two stage process he was working on. I don't know. You know, he he'd been up on the pipeline a long time. So now I start betting goofy. And I'm not I'm not a good gambler. I'm I'm you know I'm I'm betting goofy. I'm like hundred bucks and I'd get nineteen. I go hit me. You know, hit me nineteen. Hit me. You know, I don't care. So I'm, but I'm winning like crazy, and he comes back out, and he's like, oh, this is fantastic. I want all this money. He stuffs a bunch of money in my pocket, stuffs a bunch of cocaine in my pocket. And goes, we're going to another. And we start going to these places, We're just and we're all walking distance. So finally, we walk out of one. He says, all right, we're done, we're done, man. I'm going home and done. I goes, all right, great. So I walk out, and I go, wow, it's still dark out. This is fantastic. I have beating sunlight, you know, because I thought, you know, it's, you know, you walk out, and you, right. you go, oh, man, you got to go to the 7-Eleven, get one of those cheap sunglasses, try to get home into the cave, you know, and I go, fantastic, I beat the birds, you know, the, when the birds are, I said, I, I, I'm, this is great, I'm going to get some real sleep for the show tonight, so I'm walking across the parking lot of the club, you know, and I see Lanier coming across the parking lot, and I go, hey, Lanier, hey, man, I'll see you later tonight, he goes, later tonight, man. But he told me later tonight it's eight o'clock. You got a show in an hour. <laughs> it's like eight p.m. because it was it was dark, dark all the times. So he goes, yeah, "You got," and I I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep for three days. Vic and I are up for three days, just running and doing this. So at the end, Sunday night after the show, Lanier drives me to the airport. I am tweaked. I am like you know. I'm just I'm like Breaking <laughs> Bad's worst speed freak. I'm just. Shaking, tweaking. And this is back in 83. So he literally, you know, there was no security. They had an x ray machine. It was, you know, they had a metal detector. It was just set up to pick up, you know, artillery shells. Anything less than an artillery shell, you walk right on the plane, right? They had nothing. So Lanier, this back then, you could, he walks me on the plane. He doesn't have a ticket. He's not going he just walks like a leash. He's got me on like a leash. He takes me, sits in a seat, and he buckles me up. <laughs> and he puts a big, like double gram vial of coke in my pocket. Goes, this should get you to LA, brother. Good luck. <laughs> and he leaves the plane, and I'm like vibrating. So the flight attendants come on the plane, and I go, I need, a, I need a scotch. I need some, I need some liquor. I need to like come down a little bit, you know. And they're like, Sir, we haven't taken off yet. I said, I need some. I'm in the back of the plane. Just by the old days. I'm smoking. <laughs> they give me a scotch. I need I need another scotch. So I'm like four scotches in before the, we've even hit the runway. And so we take off. And it's a it's a red eye, you know, in the middle of the night. So everybody goes to sleep and I'm back there drinking and going to the bathroom every thirty seconds to do some blow. So one of the flight attendants goes, Hey, having a little party here? I go, Yeah, she goes, Can I join us? I Absolutely. <laughs> so we go into the bathroom together and Make things happen. Well, as much as I can make things happen with cocaine working the way it was, you know. But it was like, and then then I get back, you know, and I I slept for like four days. I get back to L.A. and just sleep for four days. But as soon as I could operate a telephone, I got on the phone to Strassman and said, book me back in there as soon as you can.
0: (laughs) Now, now,
1: and Vic and I became friends forever.
0: Well, see, that's so—it's cra- just how crazy it was. Now, when, you, when you're performing now, do you tell that story? I mean, because you do your act, like, or do you just save that for when you do your storytelling?
1: No, just I just want to do my storytelling. There's a few stories I can do that I've done in my act. I've done in cruise ships. There's a there's a few stories I've done uh, that that are just regular. You know, they're not like that. I that that's a little bit too much for most people. Well, you told <laughs> when, I, when we were in and Valencia, there's another version that, that you're not getting on this radio
0: either. <laughs> when we were in Valencia, you did the Rodney story. You, you tell that on stage, yeah. right? Uh, uh, yeah, I've not done on a cruise ship, right? Now. I've okay. done at a club, comedy club. Now, how, now, how'd you meet Rodney? What happened there? Well, I met
1: Rodney like everybody when we, when we got to New York. In, I got to New York in 79, and everybody was running. Nobody was making any money. There were a couple of Jersey gigs that just started to pop up, like $55. But everybody had day jobs or some way to make money. And, but Rodney would hire you to work late at night for 75 bucks a set. Uh, from midnight to four in the morning, most of the time it was like some sort of, you know, prom gig, you know, and it was just, it was combat, you know what I mean, it was a whip in a chair, and it was just combat pay, and and you're up there just, I, my strategy was always just find out which one was the loudest mouth in the group, you know, even if it was a regular crowd, it was just a bunch of drunks, and you just bury them, New York style, just bury them, just attack the heckler, put them up on a cross, everybody'd yell, hey, fantastic, crucifixion, and go home, so, uh, Roddy would sit in the back of the room and, and laugh. You could hear him laughing sometimes. <laughs> all right, all right, you know, because he just loved watching us up there trying to fight it out, you know. And one one particular night, uh, uh, both of the other comedies got run off early. They just run off early. And then you had to do the show. I just jumped up there and just did their time, my time. I just stayed up there a long time. And kept just battling. That wouldn't quit until the you know, uh, Tony was his guy. Until he signals, okay, that's enough. Show's over. Right, And I come off. And Rodney comes up and goes, hey, kid, you got a lot of guts, man. You stay up there. You know, I like that, man. I like that a lot. Hey, you want to do some cocaine? I'm like, fantastic, of course. That's why I got into show business. Do cocaine with Rodney. You know? <laughs> yeah. So we go down. And you know Rodney, when he used to, he wore a suit on stage. In fact, like I have like, I don't know if I told you this, I have like four ties that Rodney gave me, red ties. Really? Yeah. It, two of them are hand-painted. People would give Rodney ties, red ties, because he always wore a red tie with his suit. But he's, like, I can't wear this. I got shit on him, you know. He's got stuff on him. I can't do that, you know. He's like, I just got a red tie. You know, but, but any kind of pattern they had, he could. What, what would they paint on them? Like what? Don't their hand. You ever see hand painted ties? Are really cool. These no. like forties or fifties ties. They're just they're they're, they're somebody painted, and it's beautiful, beautiful. Like like tropical ones, a tropical scene, okay. you know. And so they're just patterns. That, but that he gave me four ties. I put them in a box. I found them about a couple of years ago. So I wear them. But anyway, um, so anyway, so he goes, uh, come on, let's go. But when Rodney got off the stage, he would get out of his suit immediately and put on a rope. But he never wore anything under the rope, and he never really bothered to close the rope. So when you saw Rodney (laughs) off stage after a show, you saw Rodney. You saw all of Rodney. So we get down to his office. I don't know if it's down or up, but he had an office. And we we start doing cocaine, which, by the way, was the first time I, in my life, you know, and I, I was 25 at the time, that I ever realized that there were different levels of cocaine available, like, or different kind of drugs available. Like, I was doing the street cocaine. Rodney had, like, celebrity cocaine. You know, the stuff I was buying off the street was so cut with baby laxative, you know, it kept you more regular than it got you high. You know, you do a line, take a dump. You do a line, you take a dump. This stuff, you know, I was, like, immediately going, whoa, this is God, this is what I've heard cocaine was supposed to be, right? So we're doing cocaine. and. I had Rodney's ears, so I was like talking to him and asking me stuff, and he's telling me stories, and I said, um, hey, Roddy, I want to get better. How do I get better? He says, well, you got to tape yourself. Do you tape yourself? I go, yeah, I used to, but I can't stand my voice. I sound like an idiot, you know? He says, of course you're an idiot. You're a comedian. What do you think, you're a brain surgeon? <laughs> you sound stupid because you're a comedian. It's all right. It works for you. All right, it works. You know what I mean? Just listen to yourself. You got to tape yourself. You got to listen. Listen to what the audience laughs at, because they'll tell you what's funny about yourself. They will. Individually, they may be orangutans. but was a group they're genius. <laughs> so it was great advice, right? But the only problem was we were doing cocaine off this glass table that Rodney had. And every time I bent over to do a line of cocaine, I could see Rodney's nuts hanging underneath the table. <laughs> so my real lesson was there's no such thing as free cocaine. That was my real lesson. <laughs> but, you know, he would – and I'd, I'd come over there and watch all these – all these older acts that Rodney had headlined at the club back then was like, you know, David Fry and Jackie Mason's for Jackie was big again. He was out, you know, just working, you know, just with these clubs and, 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 and Jackie Vernon, all these guys. And some nights they'd sit afterwards in, in the bar and just send talk and hang out and kibitz. And if you were there hanging out as a young comic, you could just sit off to the side maybe and listen, you know, and one night um, it was Jackie Mason and Jackie Vernon and, And Rodney and a couple other guys. I think Joe Ansis was there because, you know, he's the legendary Joe Ansis, who was Lenny Bruce's sort of muse and lived with Rodney. But anyway, these guys are sitting there talking, telling stories. And at one point, Jackie Mason says to Jackie Vernon, he goes, I can't. I can't. All my impressions sound like Rodney. Hey, do you do that thing I gave you? Did you do that thing I gave you? He goes. He goes. Some some gig that Jackie Mason had given Jackie Vernon. You do that thing Saturday night. That thing I gave you. Did You do that. How'd it go? He goes. I didn't do it. Jackie Vernon goes. I didn't do it. Jackie Mason goes. What do you mean you didn't do it? He says. Well, they didn't meet my price. Jackie Mason says. Did you have another gig that night instead? He goes. No. He says. You had no gig. And you didn't work, you got no price. Right. <laughs> you got no price. You do the gig that's in front of you to do for whatever money you can get until you can get a better gig with more money. Otherwise, do the gig that's in front of you to do. And it was like, I was listening to some great advice from these guys.
0: See, I think that's what's great. I know when when I was doing comedy in Philly, a lot of us would get jobs at the Comedy Factory outlet and we'd get paid $5 under the table. But we always got a guaranteed spot for the open mic. But then we got to see all these amazing comics come through the headliners because back then there was some great comics. And I don't think people appreciate that as much anymore. I think, you know, it's a generation where they don't really watch the comics. They, especially out here, they don't want to learn. Like, we knew, you know, you do comedy, oh you, you, you have five minutes. Like, I and mean, when you sit there and you would build five minutes. Like, you would sit there and you go, okay. You wouldn't sit there and go, hey, I wrote... Thirty minutes today? No, you didn't. Like, yeah, just be like, you know, and the people are like, yeah, I, I'm gonna do my, I'm gonna do an album. I'm like, how long have you been doing comedy? <laughs> two and a half years, and you're gonna do an album? And he's been up five times yeah. in two and a half years. And, it's not like the old days. Yeah. And it's and, like a hobby. Yeah, I've been up five times. I'm ready for an album. And the best thing also is when it comes to headliners, because you know, back in the day, especially when I worked at the comedy clubs in the Philadelphia area, you know, it was the MC did fifteen to twenty, the feature did thirty, and the headliner did forty five and the headliners have been in the business and when they did 45, you know if they had to, they could do two different 45 or three different 45-minute sets. Now I see people, and I always crack up on Facebook, people are saying they're headlining a show, but there's like nine other comics. So I go, what are you, what are you doing, 13 <laughs> minutes to headline? No, I don't no, understand. Like, he's just
1: ending the show yeah, but what's he exactly. a call it headline. You have what I call shade-tree comics now. Did you ever hear that phrase? What does that mean? Like shade-tree mechanics. My dad used to say, you, know, you see some guy working on his car on the weekend, right? Basically just really screwing it up, but he's just like tinkering with his car. And or they were shade tree mechanics. My guy, yeah, he's a shade tree lawyer. Shade tree. He's just kind of hobbyist. They're just hobbyists. They just kind of screw around with it. These guys never intend to, They're never going to quit their day job. They like got a good day job with their a lawyer account. They just do it as a hobby because they're young guys. And on the weekend, what are they going to do? Hang out at the bar with the other schmucks trying to pick up women? If they go on stage, they got a better shot of getting noticed by the women. So it's <laughs> and they got something to do as an excuse, right? At least I'm there hanging at the bar because I'm going to go on stage later as a comic. They don't even tend to be real comedians or really do it, but they call themselves comics, and it's okay. But you have a lot of these open mic shows. these They call them just mics or bring ems, bringers or whatever they call them. So you don't have anybody there who's really, they're not hanging out with real comics. Right. So it's the blind leading the blind. It's the ignorant teaching the ignorant. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how to do a show. They never learn how to do a show. They never learn how to structure an act. You see them open up with the sex stuff and then try to do Intimate stuff about their parents raising. After that, you you go. You want to go do the parent stuff first, and then do the sex stuff. But they don't even know that. So it's 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 watching. Look, they're, they're, I'm not saying that this generation is bad. There are more better comics than ever. There are better younger comics than ever. They're better. They're better than we were. There's more of them better. But there's also a lot more bad ones. A lot, a lot more bad ones. Well,
0: that always cracks me up, too, is just because, as I said... Because there's just more comics. Yeah, there's so many more. In Philadelphia, I think on Open Mic, we had... There's always, like, 25. Like, and you go to the Comedy Works, and they they would order you, like, if they liked your... Right. And then if you went to the outlet, you picked out of the hat, unless you worked there. But there was only, like, 25 acts. And that 25 would always stay at that number, but there'd be, like, one guy would show up one week... And he'd die, so he wouldn't show up. But then another guy would come, so there's always a rotating, but there was like 20 solid acts. Here, you sit there, and if I see one more person on Facebook, everyone's a comedian. That's what their job is a comedian. Yeah. They're a comic. No, no. Did I ever tell you the Bob Schimmel story? No. Robert Schimmel comes out here, and he's
1: he's selling, you know, Schimmelhood, right? Schimmel's great. He's dead now, but he was a great comic. I just met his hey, brother. When he first moved out of here, he was selling stereos. Beverly. Uh, stereo, which was a high-end stereo place over in West Hollywood. He was a stereo salesman. He gets a call. They get a call. Steve Martin wants a stereo set up in his house. This is 1979, something like that, 70, 78, when Steve Martin was the height of his thing, maybe, you know. So Schimmel says, I'll take that one. He runs over there with a high-end stereo, you know, banging off and stuff, the best, you know. Schimmel told me this story. So he goes... Setting up the stereo, he can't help himself. He's doing his jokes in between. Steve Martin's sitting there watching him in his living room, and Schimmel's trying to do his jokes in between setting up the thing. He's taking his time, and, he, and Steve Martin just staring at him. Every time Schimmel does a joke, he, he looks over to see if Steve Martin does any reaction to it. Nothing. Nothing. He just keeps banging these jokes out and setting it up. And finally, he, he just blurts out. He goes, You know, I'm a comedian too. And Steve Martin says, No, no, you're a stereo installer. <laughs> That's what you're doing for a living. That's who you are. He says, when you make your money doing stand-up comedy, then you can say you're a stand-up comic. That is so true. And you know what happened, though, a couple
0: years later when Schimmel did his first CD? Guess who did the liner notes? Steve Martin, Steve Martin. Well, that's funny because I remember when I was starting to do comedy and we were doing open mics, right. yeah, I had this cheesy card. It was Steve Cooper, stand up comic. What happens? That was my tagline. What happens? <laughs> and my, 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 friends, my friends would make jokes to me because they, they said, it sounds like you're going butt at it. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> at. I go, but I remember I was at this bar called The Coastline in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I don't know if you probably, I don't know, if that's a 30-minute ride for me, but that was like the legendary, you know, Guido's on one side and then the kids from Cherry Hill on another side. And I remember. Were there he, any
1: trans in the parking lot? Oh,
0: God, yeah. <laughs> Come on. It was cherry and red Camaros. There's Transams and red Camaros. <laughs> a lot of fire. That was Cherry Hill East, <laughs> My Cherry Hill's graduation, like all the young Jewish girls got red Camaros. <laughs> the whole parking lot had so many red Camaros. Because my town was 80% Jewish. So all these girls are, and you just sit there and you go, oh, man, you know, and then occasionally like some girl will get a sob. And we're like, oh, what the hell's that? And we go, oh, well, it's like a red Camaro, but it's different. But I remember I gave this girl my card and she goes, oh, you're a comedian? She, just, she goes, why are you in the bar on a weekend? And I was like. I never gave that card out again. <laughs> but I started getting booked on weekends because she was right. I'm like I was, but that's the thing. You did two up with mics, but back then it was different. It's like there wasn't it, there so wasn't I, as much stage. There wasn't as much, I and mean, when you started out, there wasn't hardly any stage time. You know
1: how many? Com- I, I'm I, I'm trying to put together this book on the history of stand-up comedy too. I've got a lot of research done on it, but I figured in '79 there were about 400 comics in the whole country, stop top to bottom. About 400 comics. There are 400 comics in Toledo now. Oh yeah, it's crazy. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of comedians. So that's just the nature. There's less stage time. We, you know, we went after the stage time big. And when you were back then, in, if you were in New York City, there, was, there were three clubs, the Catch a Rising Star, Comic Strip, and Improv. And then there was the Triple in and there were good times you could do stand-up in those places. But on any particular night, even if I did a Jersey gig, I'd come rushing back to the city and try to get on those other three clubs, and then try to get on the fourth club. So I could do five, six sets a night. And on the weekends, you could do eight. You'd run yeah. around and you'd be booked on all the shows. And so there's just constant amount of stage time. So oh, you yeah. got to get better. But These scrubbing. guys don't have to stay. And, and, and they were real audience I was performing in front of. Them. And now it's just comics performing in front of comics. All these open mics are just comics performing in front of comics.
0: So, you know, how much growth are you going to get out of that? That's what I always think. A lot of people say, well, we're, they always. The new term now is we're, we're on the grind. That's the big thing. Hashtag grind. And I'm like, well, grind's not a. That's not a good word. You know, grind is like something, you know, people grind your teeth. It's annoying. But that's what I always think. They're like, oh yeah, I do- I did four mics tonight. But I go, well, how many audience members are there? They go, well, maybe two at each show. I'm like, but it doesn't really help you grow. And I, 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 and I know you need to get stage time. I know it's very important. Two of
1: them and both of them are on their cell phones the whole
0: time. Exactly. So <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, I, don't, I think it stinks because I think for, in LA, I don't think a comic can really grow like they used to. I mean, when back in Philly, I mean, we had a great, Philadelphia was a great comedy city and there's so many weekend clubs that when once you got knew how to MC, you could get, I would tell people, you get, every weekend you would work. I got booked, Andy Scarpatti booked me for 30, <laughs> 35 <laughs> weekends.
1: Andy Scarpatti. He booked
0: yeah. me for 35 weekends and, uh, and he sat there and back then in MC, you made yeah. between 50 and 75 a show yeah. and all the shows were and I like the, the one with state was champs in state college that was a wednesday night and if you opened there I remember I did it with a guy named Groberson Now Cops. what year is this This was 88
1: yeah, so this is late eighties. The thing has exploded by then,
0: and it's everywhere. And then, right. and then, but then, you know, as I right. say, the downfall happened when people wow. sit there and they go, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna. Will you come and do this guy named Paul Solari, legendary in Philadelphia, cheapest guy? It's like like the wimpy of a uh, Popeye. Like, I'll gladly pay you tomorrow if you do my gig. And he would say, "Oh, can you come headline? I go, well, I'm, that wasn't headline. I was featuring. But I was like, well, yeah, you know. And I go, what's it going to pay? And he goes. Seventy-five. I go, dude. I make one hundred twenty-five to feature, and he's like, "Yeah, well, such and such a do it for fifty. And I go, "Yeah, that's why your rooms suck." And that's what happened. It was just—it was weird how well, the, it, it was the attrition. And you know what happened? But there, there were scenes in Philly, Washington
1: D.C. This was the seventies. Boston, San Francisco. There were some places, Detroit had a scene in the late 70s. There were some places that had comedy scenes where comics were doing We didn't know each other were doing it. There was no internet. We didn't, you know, I was surprised. The first time a guy came, Tony DePaul came to L. Brookman's where we were doing it in Washington, D.C., and came to me and said, hey, you should come out to San Francisco. We had a place called the Holy City Zoo. We're doing comedy out there. I was like, really? You guys are doing it, too? You didn't know. And then what happened when the comedy club started opening, like, say, Atlanta or Cleveland, all of a sudden... These clubs opened, and there became an infestation of people who wanted to do comedy would start hanging out there. So you had these local comic scenes starting to proliferate. And you'd come into town. And back then, you know, the openers, the MCs, were getting $1,000, $1,500 a week. The clubs were packed. The club owners had more money. They, they were making so much money, so they, they paid. So a guy would come in the club, some guy, kind of funny guy, a local funny guy, and he'd talk to the openers. How much are you getting paid? And the guy would go, 1500 Guy guy would go, I'm getting $400 a week for selling appliances to Sears. I'm a decently funny guy. I'm going to do this. So the guys were quitting. You'd come into town one time, there'd be nobody there hanging out at the bar. Next time you come in, there's 20 guys hanging out at the bar going, I'm doing comedy too. I mean, things just popped up and it just spread. Those comedy clubs spread the word and spread comedy.
0: Now, when you were starting out, uh, or uh, when, as you were starting to work, I know you were in the forefront because you were on the you know, headlining, but did you have any older comics, besides listening to the guys at Dangerfields, did you have anyone who like sort of mentored you or would sit there and give you advice or you could turn to a for advice for advice? There was a guy named Uncle Dirty in, okay. in New York. And
1: Uncle Dirty was... Robert you know, he, Altman. Yeah, Robert Altman. Who hung out with Carlin and Pryor, and he was a contemporary with those guys. And he was a little older than us. You know I mean, we were like guys in our 20s, and Uncle Dirty was in his 40s at the time. He was my dad's age. But he was banging it out with us, still would come and hang out at the clubs. And we got a lot of, a lot of advice from him. I'd watch guys like Belzer, Kelly Rogers, who was a little bit ahead of me on the, on the thing. You know, I'd get advice from him. But I watched, it was like class, every night. If I wasn't on stage, I was sitting in a room in the back watching every comic. And just watching, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, Rick Overton, Seinfeld, Larry Miller. You just watch these guys, and see what everybody's doing, you know, and see, you know, go. Oh, I can't go. The I had a bit about um, first time my parents left for a weekend, and I had a party at the house. And I had like four or five jokes, pretty good. Then I see Larry Miller go up and do like fifteen minute piece on it. I go, well, I'm dropping my little piece, you know. You know what I mean? I'm dropping mine. In fact, I think I went with Larry, and went, hey, I got a couple of jokes here that might add on to your magnum, your magnum tour de to force, you know. But you'd watch these great comics. Everybody been doing different things, you know, and working it out, and and so and you get advice from people. Everybody was helping each other with advice, you know. And that's
0: now. Didn't you go to Australia a little while ago to perform?
1: Yeah, I went to um, uh, uh, Melbourne. What was that like? Well, you know, first of all, you you kind of forget that Australia is only like 22 million people. It's less than Southern California. So these comics, they don't have a lot of work out there. It's really not easy for them to tour and make a living because it'd be like, your whole career would be like touring Southern California. It's very difficult. But they love comedy. They're straight ahead people. They're like, you know, just, they love it. They love it. And and there's really not much language difference at all. I think there's less... Didn't even even england you know it just was easier for my accent to go over it didn't it, it went
0: well i mean i really enjoyed it now the cruise ships i know i want to i want you to tell a story about the first cruise ship you did years ago oh. which is you know you
1: never know and it was like classic. One of the, it was one of these ones where they go you know you're going out of, you're just going out new year's day you're go, going out of new york it's just a little gambling post new year's eve kind of party out one night and come back you do a show like okay so I get on this thing, and they, I go, what am I doing? They go, you're doing in the Spinnaker Lounge, one of those kind of places. Oh, when as soon as you hear Lounge, you go, oh, boy, you know. Not the theater? No, 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 no. We got a Guys and Dolls production in the theater. You're doing the Spinnaker Lounge. <laughs> so I get there at 9 o'clock. I'm supposed to do this show at whatever, 10 or whatever. I get there kind of early to check it out, and there's, they're having a karaoke contest. And they're you know the place is packed six seven hundred people doing karaoke. I watch them doing karaoke, karaoke, karaoke. I saw about five New York, New Yorks. So coming out of New York City, so everybody's you know you know, you, you know it's like. They're either singing Billy Joel's "New York State of Mind" or they're singing "New York, New York." You know what I mean? And they're just singing and singing and singing. And finally, um, there's a ten fifteen people at all times packed around the the DJ booth. Saying I need to sing next, I need to sing next. So now the DJ goes, "Listen, no more singing. We're gonna have a comedy show in a couple minutes." Well, this is like, "Are you kidding me?" It's my parents' fiftieth anniversary. You know, New Yorkers they always got a reason. <laughs> my mother is dying right as we speak out here. She hooked up the machines. I got to sing to her one last time. You know, they're all, you know, they're New Yorkers. So Immediately they got reasons why they got to be on stage. So they're screaming. They're not happy. And I'm like, "Oh boy, this is not good." So the, finally, the 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 little cruise director comes over to me and he goes, Eric. "I said, yeah, I'm looking for you." He says, "Yeah, okay. Look, I'm very busy. I'm getting ready. I got a show to do after yours. We're immediately doing a show after yours, but I'm very busy. But give me your name, give me your intro. I give him the name, the intro. He goes, good, fantastic. Uh, be right here. We're going to do just a little bit of thing between just to get him off the, the 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 you know get him off the karaoke before we bring you up. Just a little thing." I said, "Okay, no problem. I'm ready." So they they announce no more karaoke. Well, visibly you hear boos. <gasps> they go, all right. How about a little dancing? And then they turn on disco. You know, so now the floor is packed, packed. Everybody out there disco bumping, doing the old bump. You know, all these middle aged people bumping, and they're all drunk. It's just you know, it's a party. It's like the people who can't stop. New Year's Eve was not enough, right? Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you know, or they had to work New Year's Eve, but they were partying hard, man, drinking and partying, and they go. And they're dancing and they're singing. And the guy comes, guy come, the, little, the little cruise director comes in and he says, all right, you ready? I said, yeah. And he goes out in the middle of the dance floor with a radio mic and they cut the music mid-song. Like, you know, <laughs> ring my bell, it stops. And everybody's looking around. What happened to the music? They're all dancing. The dance floor's packed. They're looking around. And he's like, all right, everybody off the floor? Everybody off the floor. It's comedy time. And they're like, What? Comedy time. You know, it's like comedy time. Sounds like some sort of 50s, you know. We're going to have Milton Berry here in a second. They're chasing everybody off this dance floor. Well, you're on a dance floor bit. So now they're just all standing around, literally standing around. There might have been five, six hundred people just kind of standing around now off to the side. And he goes, All right, we got a comedian here. And then he just goes, He's got to be funny. He's like, He's got to be funny. He forgets all my credits or whatever I gave him. And he goes, Rick. Rick and he just like like calling for me Rick Rick he doesn't have a last name so I walk out take the mic he walks off I just start doing my act and you know comedy I mean stage you need a stage elevated stage that always helps you need good lighting and good sound I had sound but the lighting was just like Disco lighting, so I'm under like a red light. I can feel it. I look up. I said, "Can we get some white lights here?" Can I'm I'm yelling to the guy in the back. Can I get some white lights because I can see. I'm like under red, you know. I start doing Mac, you know, you know, you 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 like. I had like I was supposed to do like thirty minutes. I ran through thirty minutes in eight minutes. You know, you just like you know, I me. Mean? You just go no laughter, no. You realize how how little without the laughter, it's really it's like a, just a balloon. It's oh, yeah.
0: a it's a deflated balloon. And you start talking faster. You just start. I remember I was doing a show and I was like, I had to do thirty minutes, and it was like one of Big Daddy Graham used to these shows, like the Ardmore Cabaret or something. And I remember sitting there and. There was like the crowd wasn't listening. And it was one of my first gigs yeah. and my knee started shaking. And I whole time I'm thinking I had like some nervous quip in my knee. And I'm thinking, I gotta get this material out. And I kept thinking, everyone's gonna look at my knee shaking and it throws you the hell off, especially because 'cause you're right. Your material you go, Oh, well, this is easy and then all of a sudden you go you look at your watch and you go, What? And back then we had the digital watches. <laughs> you're like, mm-hmm. what? It's been seven <laughs> minutes. <So laughs> I got when could you set the 22 minutes left.
1: (laughs) But I've been doing this a long time, you know, and I knew what I needed. I knew what I needed. So I just bait the hook, you know. "Ah, I guess you guys are all from New York. Yeah, that's right, pal. Then I went into the heckler and I said, that's, that's, uh," you know, so I started running them down and a couple of other guys heckled and I started tearing them up and the place goes crazy. You know, it's New Yorkers. They just went, all right, somebody's getting chewed up here. This is fantastic. (laughs) And so I did, you know, I just did a lot of that, and then I slipped back into some other material, and I, I was able to pull it off, you know. When I'm, so I see the guy, I finally see the cruise director come around. I know he's, I said, you know, I'm kind of nodding, nods at me, I've done enough time. So as I go, as I'm saying, all right, that's my, he runs out, grabs the mic for me. I haven't even said goodnight, right? He grabs <laughs> the mic, he goes, all right! And then he's dressed I, don't want, I didn't even really get it at first. Why he's dressed as a biker. You know, a little biker thing and is right. bare chested with a leather jacket <laughs> on and leather pants. And then an Indian comes out and a construction worker and the music YMCA comes on and he does a whole stage show where he does not just YMCA, he does all the Village People hits. And I, I never even said, hey, how about a hand for the comedian just like... I go inside, he goes, all right, why have the eight I just walk off back to the, go back to my cabin
0: and he'll say, yeah, you know. Now, now, after that experience, when's the next time you did a cruise ship? Well, I started getting
1: some legitimate cruise ships after that, you know, and I, and, and they're, 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 look, it's it's where, guys my age, if you can't put butts in the seats in the comedy clubs, that's where you gotta go. I do country clubs, which are cruise ships on land, you know, you know there's a particular demographic from forty to eighty in the age range, you know, and and works for me.
0: I'm sixty two now. It works for me. It's right in my wheelhouse, you know. Now look the cruise, when you're on a cruise, you only perform like once or twice a week. Or? Yeah, yeah. So you basically I mean how long let's say you I'm going to
1: write. I'm going out on a cruise ship tomorrow.
0: Okay, where are you and going? I'm
1: going to write. I'm going
0: to fly into Fort Lauderdale
1: and then get on a ship that goes across to Portugal. Okay. And so it's an Atlantic Crossing. And I'll do two shows during a the week. There'll be, of, of the nine days or ten days, I'll do two shows. That's it. I was just down to Haiti for 20 days, two cruise ships. I did four shows. You know, now, How long is a show? 45 minutes. Two, it, two 45 minutes. I've got two, two different 45s. Is it just you? Yeah. Okay. So I like that.
0: So you have to do two in the theater. Nice. Two different forty-five minute sets. Now, yeah. do crowds? I mean, is there? Did they get packed? Because I mean, I guess people sit there. You, yeah. You, you, yeah. They generally they, they, they There's
1: nothing else to do. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's either you or, you know, there's nothing else to do. So they generally get a good crowd. They 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 pack them in. So do, is it in the beginning of the week or like especially you, after you do well the first time, right? That may be like half or three quarters full. But after that, the word goes out. Hey, the guy was really funny. Then you're packed the next time.
0: Now do you get to eat at the buffet? I, I mean, do you, have, do you have to watch? I, I
1: eat at the buffet every night.
0: Do you now? Do you like this, the food or? Because I always feel like they have sushi. Like it's, it's out. For, it seems like it's out for a long time. No,
1: like. no, no. The, you go on the higher end ships. I mean, I, oh, okay. Know, so, I mean, so I'm on Celebrity and Princess and Royal Caribbean. I feel like. The, I, there's good food for me i eat a lot of salads i eat you know, i eat well see i, I
0: took a cruise on Kantiki and <laughs> i i didn't i didn't it was awful food it was awful yeah. food
1: there's there, there's some ones that that, that you know i've, I've heard are pretty bad you know
0: now the book how long how, how long is your book going to be do you know in how many chapters are you gonna put it in Probably chronological order yeah it's gonna be chronological order okay, now are, are you gonna sit there because i know a few weeks ago you did your show yeah um what's it I, it's, it's a long title boy leaves stand-up, boy comes back to stand
1: Yeah, i See, I've taken, it's not the whole, it's obviously not the whole book because the book's much longer. So I've just taken sort of arc of of boy meets funny, boy loses funny, boy gets funny back kind of thing. So it's like when I, I found, when I started doing stamp comedy, it was like, I, mean, I was in law school. I was, I was going in a different direction and I found it and immediately it was like I fell in love. This is, it was the best drug I'd ever found in my life. Hearing people laugh, it was unbelievable for me. So I found something I never thought but I, ever find my, I, mean, I found my passion, which is kind of a cliche, but that's what happened. And then the alcohol and drugs took me down, uh, eventually, where I would kind of lost that. I lost my love for comedy. I got completely lost. And then I quit them and got it back again. I mean, all the really great things in my career happened after I quit drinking and drugging. Not, not that I didn't have a good time for a while. I had a lot of fun for a long time.
0: I think, it's, I think it's also, it's just, it's a hard life. I mean, when you're, first of all, you're on you the road. You can make
1: it harder when you're drinking yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <what I was. laughs>
0: well, when, when you're drinking a lot, you're doing a lot of drugs. It's because you always feel like crap. I remember you told me about, like, you worked with Sinbad, and he was just this happy guy. Yeah, uh, uh,
1: that was like one of those moments that, that, that kind of opened it up for me. It was, it was 84, and uh, end of 84, and Sinbad and I, we did this, uh, they have a rodeo in Texas. It's a convict rodeo. It's a prison rodeo. They used to do it all the time. I don't know if they still do it. But every year the convicts would put on a rodeo, and we did a show after the rodeo in front of all these people. And then, and then simba and I did a bunch of one nighters. Then we ended up in Austin, Texas, at a comedy club there for a week. And he was like young guy, on great guy, just on fire for comedy, the way I used to be. And I was just kind of out now and bitter, and, and and I was fat and just kind of just chain smoking and and drinking and drugging around the clock and. And I saw him one night, we were after a show, we were sitting at a bar and I was, you know, drinking and doing drugs and kind of sitting down the other end of the table by myself and Sinbad was at the other end just telling stories and being laughing and joking and everybody's around him. I go, that's the way I used to be. What happened? You know what I mean? And, and it occurred to me, it wasn't because he was black and I was white or he was young and I was older. It was, he, he was drinking Coca-Cola and it just kind of occurred to me. I said, I don't think this stuff is really, it, it's killing me. There was a couple other things that happened, but that was, that was one of the moments where I went, a little bit of a moment of
0: clarity kind of thing. And so, yeah, I know you talked about when you started doing it sober, it was...
1: Oh, know, not easy, man. Not easy. Not easy at all. I would I would go on the improv night after night when I first got sober, and I would get angry. I would rant. I would throw the mic down and storm off. I would, you know, and Bud Freeman, God bless him, kept putting me on night after night. You know, I'd be walking out of the place after bombing again. And this only went on for a couple of weeks, but it did happen, you know. And um, Bud would say, see, tomorrow night at 10, you know, like he'd give me another great primetime spot again the next night. And uh, so I had to show up and try it again. Eventually, I broke through, and uh, it got better and better.
0: Now, the stories show, the one I know when I saw you in the very early of doing at Bob's now, are you, is it all off book now, or are you still looking at Oh, yeah, at the no, I'm off book now. Okay, so I, I got
1: it, I got it arc down, I got it down, you know, it's, it's really about, it's also part of like my dad. You know, my dad did not like that I was going into comedy. He loved comedy; he was into it. But he was a businessman, and and you know, when I when I said I'm going to leave law school, my 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 mother nearly just she said what? She's like, you know, what? And my dad was, you know, you you you're nuts. You you're not smart enough to do this. You're not, you know, kind of you you can't go up to New York City. They'll tear you up up there, you know, and. uh So he never approved what I was doing and never, even when I did the Tonight Show the first few times, he never called me and said, great job, never said a word about it, you know. And uh, finally, I made Johnny laugh in a way that caught his attention. I was, you know, I was a guy that would do panels sometimes, but if there wasn't enough time, sometimes I wouldn't do panel. I'd done it about 14 times. And it was one night I was, they said, look over at the end of the set, and if there's enough time, Johnny will call you over. If not, you know, Johnny will give you the sign, the old. Circle finger and three fingers, and you leave. So, this night, Johnny gave me the circle finger, and I was going to go back to the curtain. So, instead of just turning around and walking back to the curtain, I backed out like a gunfighter coming out of, backing out of a bar. You know, I pulled my jacket back and put my hand down like I had a gun, and I just looked at the audience, like backing out real wary, you know. And Johnny starts laughing. You can hear, I saw the tape, Johnny, you can hear Johnny laughing. And uh, Ed McMahon then goes, What's he doing? And, and Johnny goes, It's great, he's doing a gunfighter. It's hilarious, right? And my dad calls me the next day. He goes, you made Johnny laugh. I mean, John, my dad loved Johnny. Like all the, you know. He said, you made Johnny Carson laugh. I go, yeah, he says, you're really good at this. And that's the first time. And there's was like a thing, you know, it's really weird. I mean, I wasn't a kid then. I was like 30-some years old. But there's an old saying, I don't know if it's Southern or not, but there's, you're not a man until your daddy says you're a man, kind of thing. And it was really like a big pressure off me. It was like, you know, just acknowledge that I was good at this. right? Because you know? my dad was always funny. But he was he was amateur level. He right. was amateur drunk level, you know.
0: But <laughs> I'd gone pro. We have a few minutes left. Um, what other shows do you have coming up? Uh, I mean, I know you go to Atlanta sometimes. You go. To I'm going places. to go.
1: This is great for me. I'm going to go to the Wolf Trap in Vienna, Virginia, which is uh, Jeff Penn, uh, an agent, uh, puts us on every year. It's a night of comedy, and that's why I started in D.C and I in fact I opened up for bands after the Wolf Trap when I first started I opened up for a lot of bands so we told you stories about that before but I opened up for a lot of bands did I ever tell you the Peter Tosh story I have time for, have, real quick we have two minutes left. three minutes left two minutes left alright Peter Tosh I'm opening up for Peter Tosh I was so excited 1981 Bob Marley died Peter Tosh one of the wheelers down on tour I love Marley so so Rich Hall had opened up for him the week before in Philly. I was over in D.C. He says, listen, man, whatever you do, stay away from backstage, man. Don't go near backstage. Got i got a contact tie. I could barely do my show. I said, well, Hall doesn't smoke like I smoke, you know, so I'll be all right. I'm backstage. They see me pacing around. One of the guys goes, hey, funny man, come over here. And they hand me a joint. It was, really, it was just really just a smoldering baseball bat. I'd never seen anything this big. And I'd never smoked Jamaican pot anyway. You know, I'd always smoke like, you know, $20 shake weed, you know, crap. I took a couple of hits, and the last thing I remember was they were introducing me. It sounded like I was being introduced underwater. I go out on stage, just laugh, and my friend told me later, You laughed for 15 minutes, didn't do a joke. (laughs) The audience laughed with you, and you left. The only thing that saved me was the audience was as high as I was. That's the only thing that saved me. So now, now, how can people get in touch with you? Your website is RichShider.com. There's contact on there. And you can, uh, rshides at com. R-S-H-I-D-E-S at AOL.com. My phone number is 818-458-8600. Are you tweeting? No, I, I barely tweet. You got to while. tweet. Once in a while. Come once on, you a got to tweet. You got to tweet. We need... I, I, I tweeted one the other day. what you, what you tweet? I tweeted... Uh, uh, Easter is a celebration of the day that uh, Jesus emerged from the cave, saw
0: a shadow, and, me- and that meant three thousand more years of persecution for the Jews. <laughs> there you go. And what's your Twitter handle? Is it Shiner Richards? Rshides. Rshides. It's S H Y D Okay. Well, Rshides. Like, like it sounds. Shides. Yeah. Thanks <laughs> well, for coming back, on Thanks, yes, Coop. And uh, John, what's your information? What we? Uh, you, you're not Michael. What's your? What's your uh, Twitter? Uh, John DeCrosta. Just, John DeCrosta. Uh, John DeCrosta's in studio. Very funny guy. He I should down. use that as a last name. That's a better last name in mind. Rich DeCrosta.
1: You sound. You sound. Yeah, like I the, couldn't. I couldn't pull off the. the you Italian sound like
0: thing. connected. Yeah, like yeah, Jersey, you're, yeah. you're like
1: Thomas Hagen in The Godfather. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm connected to muskrat trappers. That's what I'm connected to.
0: So follow Rich Sadner, Follow John DeCrosta. Follow me. Uh, I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at CooperTalk. Also go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have about 360 episodes up there. You can also email me, Cooper coopertalk.net iTunes and Stitcher the same thing one word coopertalk um, I have a bunch of shit uh, <laughs> the uh, Google Play Store go to the Google Play Store get the coopertalk app it's, it's got my picture on it I look pretty handsome and uh, the thing I want to tell you about though also now is my big project now is uh, my new website stopthesalt.com that's stopthesalt.com it's a cookbook I wrote it's 120 recipes when I got out of the hospital I had to change my diet completely I had to watch my salt and the problem is people look at cookbooks, and there's all these pictures, and they get intimidated. Then you look at a recipe, and there's like 16 spices. And even if you buy a spice rack, there's only like 12 spices. So then you're like, I can't make this because I don't have tahini. So what would you do? Anything? You took
1: out the pictures and the recipes?
0: Yeah. No, I That's the recipes. quite a cookbook you got there. No, it's, it's, they're, <laughs> no they're great recipes. No, they're, 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 they're great recipes. It's uh, easy. It's, it's, they're easy. They're for people who can do it. And Beautiful. Basically, beautiful. They're, they take like 20 minutes to make, and it's all good for you. And, you know, because my friend John's here, he's a big NutriBullet guy. This guy puts pictures from the NutriBullet. They're like artwork. It's like you sit there. Me and Jeff Martyr go, holy crap. He, like, garnishes it. You look at his pictures, and you go, wait a second. Like, I make a NutriBullet. I made that thing. The shit just looked green. It's just green. It looks like, like I just juiced avocado. His things are, like, orange and and purple, and then he's got, like, cantaloupes hanging off and all this stuff. It's well, amazing. he puts different things in on, Steve. Well, you're supposed you to. check that out. <laughs> anyway. If you only do avocados, I it will be just green. I want to thank Rich Scheidner for coming on. Rich, check his website out. Uh, also, go to follow John DeCrasto on uh, Twitter, and don't forget, StopTheSalt.com, CooperTalk.net. Uh, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and that's about it. Go Phillies. We're going to be a bad season.